Go ahead and be seated. So the title of my sermon is The Pride of Death, The Pride of Life is Death in the Gospel. Um, so we're closing our study of 1 Corinthians and uh, basically want to point out that what Paul has done in Corinthians has given us a new way to live. And I'm going to set a timer just for the sake of myself here. If I don't, I will not pay attention to what I'm doing. Um, it's a new way of living. It's one of self-sacrifice, one of casting off idols, and basically it's all based on the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because of the resurrection, our lives really should change. But um, I want to just kind of start out with a little background. Some of, when I read the Bible, I'm kind of in this mode where it's like I'm in this, I'm teaching a class here called Forensic Faith. It's uh, not, I didn't make up the title, of course, but um, I've just basically been on this kick for the last couple of years of doing what used to be called apologetics, and now guys call it case-making for the gospel. In other words, finding you know, enough evidence to justify your faith. So like, instead of just saying, well, it's because I believe, or because uh, almost every religion, every person that believes a separate religion will say, well, I just felt like it was right. And if that's our criteria, then we don't really have much to stand on. So I just started going through that. So the, the, the reason I got into it is because I, I heard this guy on the radio talk about forensic faith. I thought, that is awesome. Because you really, if you consider the, consider the resurrection as a cold case crime, you know, it happened 2,000 years ago, there's still enough evidence forensically around that you can kind of make a case for a strong possibility that it did happen. Because right now... You know, it didn't take very long for people to start denying that Jesus even was crucified or that he was even risen from the dead. I think it took less than 100 years after the, after the Lord went back to heaven. So anyway, so the human element of Scripture is a real important part in my life. It's, it's, it's not just a book that was written down by somebody with the, you know, the Spirit of God making his hand move like you've heard people talk about other different religions. Um, it's actually just people reporting what happened. And the reason that's relevant to us is that means there's historical proof that the Gospels were written at a certain time by certain people who were more than likely eyewitnesses to what they were writing about. And one of the ways they look at that is through critical, uh, scriptural criti criticism, and they take it and look at... The letters were written in a way that was common back in those days. They were written in... The language was similar to what people wrote about in those days. The type of letter writing was similar to what people wrote in those days. And proper names were the same proper names in the same proportion that other people used in their writings from the same period of time. And let me explain that um, with this little article. It's not long. It's about a paragraph. The corroboration of language. The gospel writers did more than correctly cite the popular names of the first century Palestinian Jews. They also appear to have written in a style that was similar to those who lived at the time. Non-biblical scraps of papyrus and pottery from the first century provide us with samples of the form of Greek that was popular in the ancient Middle East. The Greek used by the Gospel writers is very similar to the vernacular common Greek that was used by others who lived in this region at this time in history. And that's, that's from a book by F.F. F. Bruce called The New Testament Documents, Are They Reliable? And one of the things that's important about that is so often religious writings were not written by the people that even founded the religion. Um, and another case in point would be the, the Book of Mormon. If you want to look at it in that respect, 
the Book of Mormon, there's no really documented other evidence that this, this uh, tribe or whatever it was, this ancient tribe that gave Joseph Smith these tablets or book plates, whatever they were, even existed. Plus, the language they spoke was not King James English, more than likely. But that's what Joseph Smith gave us. So it's kind of one of those things, you know, those are things that they look for. If anybody's ever asked, why don't they use the Gospel of Hermes or whomever from some of the Old Testament writings, all these, these Daniel Brown type of documents? Well, you can, by reading them, you can see that, the, man, they just don't even have the same meter of writing. They don't have the same language. They don't talk about the same things. And one of the things, the, um, uh, the thing that's, in this case, the Book of Mormon, as I brought up, the names that were listed were not names that were common at the time that he supposedly wrote it, or that, he, that it was written. So those are things that are the textual criticism that you can use to do that. So this is an actual letter to the Corinthians written by a person who lived, and the evidence for that is falsifiable. In other words, you can go and find out proof that they, this guy probably did exist. Now, nothing is ever 100%, but there's a lot of, you can certainly make a case that Paul wrote this to the Corinthians around the time, a little bit after the time of Christ. So um, so my title was, The Pride of Life is Death in the Gospel. Everything I'm going to bring up to do has to do with the pride of life. I was at work one day, and I went by this guy who was holding a sign. He was laying down on his side. He was obviously a, dressed as a homeless guy anyway. Either that or he was a, an Amazon tech guy. So sometimes there's no difference and I'm, I can verify that because I talked to one of the hotel op managers he said they're always getting in trouble because they'll tell these guys that look like they're homeless guys coming in to have their free breakfast at the residence inn oh sorry sir we need your room number he goes I just stayed here I work for Amazon oh okay sir thank you did you shower <laughs> anyway that's kind of the way that, that go down, went down but anyway he's laying down on his side and he's got this sign that says this is what invisibility looks like and you know, obviously he's got his little cup out. I guess the cup's not invisible. But um, I got to thinking, you know, that's, that's, that's weird. If he was truly invisible, he wouldn't need a sign. And would the sign be invisible? But it really just shows that he is crying out for everyone to notice him above everyone else. It's a form of, it's a form of pride. Um, but everybody, but that's why everybody looks at themselves as the most important. Like Caleb mentioned last week that we're all in this big play. And other people have noted that you are the most important person in the play. And so you're the main character in every play. So we always look at everything from our own perspective. And my, uh, so essentially what we're saying is why doesn't anyone look at me? I'm important. And what we're talking about here is kind of the fallacy of self-esteem. So um, I'm going to go, I'm going to read a little bit about self-esteem. Well, you know, I'm getting ahead of myself if I do that. But um, let's get back to the, the text here and talk about when I come about the collection of the saints. Do the same as I instructed the Galatian churches. On the first day of the week, each of you is to set aside something, is to set something aside and save in keeping with how he is prospering so that no collections will need to be made when I come. So this is Paul teaching us how to ask for money. He's teaching, it's, it's gracious, it's loving, it's not grandstanding. He's just asking everybody to just put a little something aside. When I get there, I'll collect it all and we'll, I'll take it with me or send it on its way to Jerusalem is the presumption. 
because at the time this was written, there was a, either a famine or the church had been so marginalized that there was a lot of uh, there were a lot of hungry people in Jerusalem. So um, that, that's kind of what the uh, commentators seem to think was happening right there. So, but it's interesting because Paul's addressing a real need. I mean, when I say need, I mean need. And, it's, and he's doing it as he wants it to be kind of like on the, on the QT. Just, you know, keep it to yourself. We're not going to make a big deal about it. I'm just, I'll collect it when I get there. And that's kind of a good way to do things. You know, nobody gets to be the, the big star. Nobody gets to say, oh, he gave such and such. I mean, I'm sure that word always gets out. But that's a good way to, to ask for money. And one of the things that we do here at Harambe with your money is there's a lot of stuff that you probably don't see. You might see the result of. But we have a homeless shelter here. We have we support cry out here. We, we support crew here. Um, we do a lot of things with the money that comes in to this church that doesn't necessarily get grandstanded. Or doesn't, you know, we don't put a poster up. You know, there's not the big thermometer that says, you know, here's where our money goes. Or <clears throat> but one of the things I have, uh, and I have a vision for Harambe. I've talked to John about this and Caleb, and they said I could bring it up. My, Sandy and I have this kind of little thing we'd like to see happen with Harambe since we were working with the, uh, the refuge dinner for so long, is that we'd like to see, like, maybe several floors go up and have it be a place for people to come and get retrained, get, you know, when they get off the street. We can get them off the street, but we can give them something to do, teach them a trade, teach them something. Uh, I'd even like to see there where they do, like the, um, the prison in Louisiana, where they actually have theological training. And, for instance, this prison in, in was the highest murder capital. It was a murder capital of all the federal penitentiaries. And uh, this prison ward came in, and he just didn't like it. He was a Christian, and he really felt like they needed to do something. So he got the government to agree to let him bring in Dallas Theological Seminary to do a seminary there. And so all these guys, they have to do a certain amount of work, kind of to earn their keep to get in there. They get in there, and they learn to be pastors. They now have so many pastors in this prison. In the past, used to have uh, 30 or 40 murders a year at this prison, and, and within the last 10 years, they've had one. And it's these guys are guys in there for murder. These guys are not coming out of prison, so they have really nothing to live for according to what the, the world standards. But they've trained up so many pastors that now they're transferring these guys to other prisons, and they're starting little churches within other prisons within the federal prison system. That'd be kind of fun. I'd kind of see if we had these pastors going out. And, uh, but uh, I want to show you what it's, how not to ask for money. Do we have that video here? I've owned three different jets in my life and I and used them and just burning them up for the Lord Jesus Christ. Televangelist Jesse Duplantis says God himself told him it's time for an upgrade. He said, I want you to believe me for a Falcon 7X. So I said, okay. A Falcon 7 jet like this one to preach to more people around the world. And he's asking his followers for the $54 million. I really believe that if Jesus was physically on the earth today, he wouldn't be riding a donkey. From his Louisiana headquarters, Duplantis is among a group of televangelists who preach that their wealth is God's will. This preys upon the poorest people that want and need money badly, where they're told if they give money, God's going to bless them a hundredfold. Duplantis lives in a 35,000-square-foot mansion, tax-free. He's asking everybody who has less than he has 
to pay for this jet, and I, I don't get that, you know? Fellow televangelist Kenneth Copeland recently bought a $36 million Gulfstream 5 jet. Praise God. Isn't that good? The two have commiserated about how they can't fly or pray with commercial airline passengers. This dope-filled world, right. you get in, an air, get in a long tube with a bunch of demons. Right, that's exactly that. And it, it's deadly. We asked Jesse Duplantis and his ministries for comment, but they declined to respond. So far, no indication whether he's received any contribution for his jet. Tom Costello, NBC News, Washington. Hey, NBC News fans, thanks for checking out our... Hiring. <laughs> well, I could just... I, my little commentary on that was when we get to heaven, there's going to be two little burnt stick matches next to the gates there. That's going to be Jesse Duplantis and Kenneth Copeland. If they make it in, they're going to have a lot of stuff burned off of them. But um, anyway, that's, it's actually kind of hilarious. Sad in a way, but it is hilarious. The fact that those guys are able to raise money um, speaks to what kind of teaching they might be giving people. <laughs> so, but as you can see, our society loves to believe that self-esteem is an important part of our life. The, our, the problems of our society are lack of self-esteem. Now, you can look from that video and think, self-esteem isn't all that attractive. You know, it's basically hubris. These guys believe that, I don't know if they really believe it or not, but they've got something figured out that they know a way to get money from people, and they believe it has to do with their own self-importance. One of the other things I thought about, you know, there's always a lot of the letters list other people that are coming through the, through the church and that kind of thing, and I'm thinking... Why just those people? And this is just my own personally. Why, you know, how come those people were listed? Were they more important? Maybe they were just Paul's friends. We don't know. But think of it if the uh, church tried to list, if the gospel writers tried to list everybody that was at home church today. Oh, let's take it attendance. You know, we're going to have to, so we can put them in the Bible. A lot of what was happening was not being written down so that people would say, be able to have a Bible one day. It was just, People were realizing that, well, the Lord hasn't come back yet. We need to start maybe keeping track of what he taught us so that we don't stray away from it. It was pretty obvious from the outset that people were going to have a hard time not straying away. But one of the things that we have as a, as a weakness in our, in our lives, and I may be bouncing around quite a bit, but it all has to do with the same thing, is that we have a lot of hubris in our, in our culture. And uh, I just want to read a little thing from Kenneth or uh, Timothy Keller. Up until the 20th century, traditional cultures, and this is still true of most cultures in the world, always believed that too high a view of yourself was the root cause of all the evil in the world. What is the reason for most of the crime and violence in the world? Why are people abused? Why are people cruel? Why do people do the bad things they do? Traditionally, the answer was hubris. The Greek word meaning pride or too high a view of yourself. Traditionally, that was the reason given for why people misbehave. But in our modern Western culture, we have developed an utterly opposite cultural consensus. The basis of contemporary education, the way we treat incarcerated prisoners, the foundation of most modern legislation, and the starting point for modern counseling is exactly the opposite of the traditional consensus. Our belief today, and it is deeply rooted in everything, is that people misbehave for lack of self-esteem and because they have too low a view of themselves. For example, the reason husbands beat their wives and the reason people are criminals is because they have too low a view of themselves. People used to think it was because they had too high a view of themselves and had too much self-esteem. 
Now we say it's because we have too little self-esteem. I don't know, that made a lot of sense to me when I read that. Because I know that when I get myself into trouble, either just in my wife and I, if my wife and I have an argument or if, my, if I get in trouble in, in whatever it is I can fall into, it's because I'm thinking of myself. I'm trying to do something that I think is important to me. I, can find, I find myself a lot of times with the self-pity of, I never get any time to myself. And the first thing I think of is, wait a minute, is that what's important in life? I think it's important that we have time to ourselves, but it usually is, it's usually wasted if I take time, too much time for myself. I, I don't do what I should be doing with it. So, um, and, and the other thing I wanted to point out too is that there actually are studies that show that this is true about the, uh, the issue of self-esteem. And this was another thing from, this book I'm reading from at this point is called The Freedom of Selflessness. It's from Tim Keller. It's just a real thin book, 100 and some pages. And it's, uh, it's actually very interesting to read. And when you see his arguments, you can see that it's really important. A few years ago, there was an article in New York Times Magazine by psychologist Lauren Slater called The Trouble with Self-Esteem. It wasn't a groundbreaking article or a bolt out of the blue. She was simply beginning to report what experts have known for years. The significant thing, she says, is that there is no evidence that low self-esteem is a big problem in society. She quotes three current studies in the subject of self-esteem, all of which reach this conclusion, and she states that people with high self-esteem pose a greater threat to those around them than people with low self-esteem. And feeling bad about yourself is not the source of our country's biggest, most expensive social problems. And then Tim Keller adds, it would be fun to explain how that works and why that it works and, and how that works and so on. But for now, let's just say she's right when she says it will take years and years for us to accept this. It is so deeply rooted in our psyche that lack of self-esteem is the reason why there is drug addiction, the reason why there is crime, life beating, and so forth. Slater says it's going to take forever for this view to change. You see, the thing about the low self-esteem theory of misbehavior is that it's very attractive. You do not have to make any moral judgments in order to deal with society's problems. All you have to do is support people and build them up. In traditional cultures, the way you dealt with these problems was that you clamped down on people and convicted them and called them bad. What is intriguing about, and he mentions 1 Corinthians, is that it gives us an approach to self-regard, an approach to the self and a way of seeing ourselves as absolutely different from both traditional and modern, postmodern contemporary cultures. Utterly different. The three things Paul shows us here, the natural condition of the human ego, the transformed sense of self, which Paul had discovered and which can be brought through about through the gospel, and how to get the transformed sense of self. And that's what the book of 1 Corinthians taught us, that we are different, but we're only different because of what Jesus has done. We're not different because we have learned to live a certain way or that because we've, Jesus came and gave us higher self-esteem. We actually, one of the characteristics of Christianity is that you can't do it on your own. You can't earn it. It's all done by grace. We get it all from Jesus, who, who paid the price for us. One of the things, too, that I was thinking about when I thought about all the names and tried to avoid getting um, too much hubris <laughs> in, involved in this whole thing, is that um, God speaks to his people as a whole. He, he, does, he might speak to you as an individual, but generally what he wants you to do is benefit someone else or benefit a great bigger group of people. 
So we spent a great, I spent a lot of my time in my life thinking about what can I do? You know, who, who am I? What's, you know, I'm thinking about myself and how can I become more successful or why, why was I not more successful in some certain area? I kind of like to view myself as everywhere I look, I see a mirror looking with me back at it. So every, I never really get to see objectively. I always see myself everywhere else. How come they have that car? How come they have that job? How come I couldn't get that job when I was more qualified? All that kind of stuff. And I was mentioning this to Sandy, and she goes, you know, we don't get to decide what we're going to do. I mean, have you ever thought how outlandish that idea is? That I just wonder how much time we're going to spend. You know, when we get to heaven, we, we walk through the pearly gates, as the uh, saying goes, and we're just going to look back at our life and think, wow, I had nothing to do with any of these decisions. God opened doors, closed doors and that kind of thing. And I, that isn't to say we don't use our minds for anything. I mean, we have to be highly trained. I'm always impressed by Eric. He's a highly trained professional. But God gave him the gift of what he can do, of what his mind can do. Not to just pick on Eric or point at him, but I happen to see him here, and I, he impresses me. He's a good guy. But, but like what Sandy says, we don't get to decide what we're going to do today. Yesterday, I was going to work on my sermon. I took a day off work so I wouldn't be tired. I worked till midnight last night, so I didn't. I took time off. I worked on my, tweaked my sermon, as I called it. I even went through my internet, my uh, Gmail account and organized my pictures from our trip. So I'm, you know, very productive. But I was going to spend the rest of the day just kind of chilling and, you know, reading the Bible and being spiritual and holy. Well, Sandy needed help at the church, so I came and I painted. So uh, I didn't get to do what I was going to do, and I didn't get to choose, but I felt this is what God wants me to do. So I grudgingly walked over here, and as, and as I worked, I felt better about what I was doing. Um, one of the things, too, has selected Samuel or Saul to be the new king of Israel. So they're having this. He's already been anointed. He's already been selected. And in chapter 10, it's talking about how they're going to get together. Do we have it? No. Oh, there it is. Samuel called the people of Israel to meet before the Lord at Mizpah, and he said, this is, the, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, has declared. I brought you out of Egypt and rescued you from the Egyptians and from all of the nations that were oppressing you. But though I have rescued you from your misery and distress, you have rejected your God today and have said, no, we want a king instead. Now therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by tribes and clans. So Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel before the Lord, and the tribe of Benjamin was chosen by Lot. Then he brought each family of the tribe of Benjamin before the Lord, and the family of the Matrites, or Matrites, if it's uh, Italian, was chosen. And finally, Saul, son of Kish, was chosen from among them. But when they looked for him, he had disappeared. So they asked, where is he? The Lord replied, he's hiding among the baggage. What a guy. This is your king, and we can't find him because he's hiding. But God selected this kind of, at the time, meek, of course, Samuel, of course, when it describes him, he stood head and shoulders above everyone else. He was a very tall person. So he's hiding amongst the baggage. He had to have been laying down or crouched down in a very humiliating position. But this is the guy that God had chosen, and this, he was going to serve the entire kingdom. He ended up serving only himself, and you can see there is, you'll know about the results later. But that's what happened. But he didn't get to choose what he was going to do. He didn't. He apparently didn't want to do it. But he ended up being a, a king of, of Israel, and from the very beginning, he was pretty good. He did, actually did what the Lord wanted until he got a little bit of hubris 
mixed into his life. So uh, I'm going to talk a little bit, too, about gifts. Uh, one of the things that Paul mentions in his letter is the gifts that people have. Israel, he's not really specifically saying it, but he wants, Timothy has a gift, so don't let anyone despise him. And so-and-so will come when he's done with his other thing. Everybody's got their job to do. And one of the things I've always been kind of frustrated with in the, as being a Christian is I've always like, well, say, where do I fit in? You know, I'm, I'm the guy that preaches when no one else can, when no one else can, or, I mean, that's just, but and I'm, it's like I, I never really, I'm, I'm kind of like a, you ever heard of the term jack of all trades? Yeah, well, that, that, I'm kind of like the utility player. I'm the guy that can, I'll jump in and I'll do the best I can to fill in a gap. But that's a gift. Not everybody can do that. Some people are so highly trained that they do one thing and they do it excellently, but other things they kind of aren't as good at. So, but one of the things I have, I'm going to just give you an example of kind of what my ministry is. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a good time Charlie kind of a ministry. I have this story I, I like to think about because it kind of helps me put my life back in perspective. Sandy and I had this longtime friend who was moving to another city or into another house. I can't remember where the whole thing was. She was a, a single mom, and we had helped her move several times. And she would always, she was very conscientious. She would rent the truck. She'd work it all out. She'd get herself all packed. She was the one you wanted to help move because when she got there, everything was all sized and loaded and set ready to go. You just had to toss it in the truck. And... Um, so we're, out, we're down there, and I, she always wanted me to drive the truck because I had the commercial driver's license, and she wanted, she knew I could handle the, ve- the vehicle. So we go down to this place. City Moving was the name of the place. I don't know. It's still here in Kent, but I don't know if it still uh, has a moving van rental. We walk in there, and this guy, it's like 7 in the morning on a Saturday. The guy's like, here, 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 here. He come, you could see him opening the door, kicks the door in, and we're sitting in the car going like, whoa, this guy has had a bad morning. Um, so I told Sandy... And our, and our friend and I said, wait here, I'll go talk to you guys. So I go in and I get the van ready. And 10 minutes later, he comes out, he's got this big smile on his face. He's kind of chuckling. And I get back in the car and, and they ask me, how did you do that? How did you get him, cheer him up? I said, I don't know. I just found something he was, thought was funny and I started talking about it. But um, so that's kind of my gift. You know, I don't, I'm not intimidated by people in a bad mood. I remember when I worked at the desk up at uh, the airport. I worked at Hertz for a short time, and this guy, this guy was, didn't have a lot of money. He was traveling on a coupon. You could tell he had it in his hand. He comes up. He's full of tattoos and stuff like that, so he obviously had had money at one time. But he, <laughs> anyway, so he, he's like, he didn't realize when you used your credit card, or your, at the time we still took debit cards, used your debit card, it would charge you not just your rental, but like four times the amount as a whole, which, you know, it's on the website, but it's like tiny little letters at the bottom. And who reads all that, right? When you make a reservation, you're just trying to get the thing done. So anyway, he comes up and he's yelling at my, in my face. He's spitting in my face. He's just so mad. He's going on. And I'm just looking at him. And uh, when he was done, I said, I don't even remember what I said, but uh, by the time he left, he was smiling. He was happy. He was, I, and I, whenever I see people like that, to me, that's a personal challenge. Uh, this guy has got to leave in a good mood or I've had a failure. So that, that's, that's my spiritual gift. Not mentioned in the Bible.
So I just, the reason I bring that up is I just want you to start thinking in terms of your own life. Because I'll guarantee you, most of you, what you are best at, what you are called to do, is not mentioned in Romans 8, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 14, and maybe what, Galatians. It's probably not mentioned there either. But if you do everything, it's like my job that I have. I, I, I have this job that most people consider kind of, well, most people do consider it kind of a low-skill job. But I'm the only one I know that when they get onto my streetcar, they always get off with a smile. I don't have a lot of angry passengers on my streetcar that I drive down in downtown Seattle because I talk to them, and I, you know, I help them out. I answer their questions and stuff like that. So... Um, that's all I can say. And I'm going to do the best I can. I'm not responsible for the result. I don't, it's not my job to determine whether or not they're going to be in heaven someday. I just have this simple little, I'm a simple man, just like Leonard Skinner used to think about, or used to sing about it. Just be a simple man. Um, and, and that really, and that's in the case, that's the way Christian lives are supposed to be lived. Just live your life. I have a story that I may not read. I don't think I really have enough time to read the whole thing. But it's really a story about a man who was a preacher. I do have time to read it, if you don't mind. <laughs> but it's, it's all the longer it is. It's just, um, I'll kind of paraphrase it for you. This, this guy, uh, I think William Borum, Borum is his name. He's, a, he's actually a, a very good essay writer. He's got 33-some essays that he's written on basically about his life as a Christian. He became a Christian. I think he lived in New, New Zealand and Australia and England. Kind of his ministry took place in those areas back in the uh, 1900s or uh, maybe the 19th century. But he describes this woman walking by in front of his house, going back and forth, looking really distracted and stuff like that. So he's kind of watching her in the window and he finally steps out onto the porch and she goes, are you the man that lives here? And he says, yes, I am. And so she knew that was the pastor's parsonage, if you've ever heard that term before. She'd had a baby that was terribly deformed. It had died in birth, and she wanted to have a proper burial. But she was an illegitimate mother. And uh, he said, did the child have the name? Who was the father? You know, he had the regular questions and stuff like that. So she left, and he, he agreed to do the funeral for the baby. Uh, she came back a few days later, all distraught again. And she said, I wasn't honest with you. I made up a name for the father because I didn't want someone else to get in trouble. So he doesn't divulge who that was, but it was probably somebody that was could get into some trouble or it could cause a problem for her. So here's an illegitimate, deformed baby, a woman with no husband who probably cheated with somebody else's husband. And this baby died, and she wants to have it have a proper funeral. So he thinks, okay, I've agreed to help her. So here's the way it worked. Here's the way it went down. The day the burial came, it was pouring rain, and to add to the desolate reality, the cemetery was a new one, and this was the first body to be interred. Borum remarks, somebody's telling the story how he tells it. Borum remarks on the total feeling of aloneness for this poor woman, an illegitimate, deformed baby, pouring rain, as just the three, Borum, his wife, and this lady, stand in an empty cemetery in the cold, bearing a, a bit deformed, uh, illegitimate child into the ground. No one else, just the minister, his wife, the bereaved mother present for the tragedy, and they too were strangers. And then he switches in the story to a scene where he was traveling with his boss, and he was going and visiting and praying with different pastors. And all he ever said was, be with them in their needs, in their hurts, and in their pains. 
That's, that's how you minister to the pastors. They will never forget your presence and your kindness. And then he, so he thinks back to this lady. She never, ever left his church. When he would have church every Sunday, she would be there. And that's the way our lives are supposed to be lived. I read an interesting illustration about, uh, from Ravi Zacharias. who He tells a story about this Muslim man who had been converted to Christianity. And he was, they were just talking about different things, world events and that kind of stuff probably. And the guy says, you know, he says, here's the difference between a Muslim, Christ, a Muslim man who becomes a Christian and a Western man who becomes a Christian. And he draws two circles with a little dot in each one. He said, the first circle is what the Eastern man thinks. The big circle around the dot is your spiritual life and the life of God and the life of the, uh, the life of the creation around you. You're the dot in the middle. In the Western mindset, you are the big circle around the dot. The dot in the middle is God, the world around you, and all the things that have to do with the world around you. And, he, and I thought it was an interesting insight because if you really think about it, I know I did, I started thinking about it, and I thought, you know what? I'm the main character in every story. And it's true, everybody enters my story. I never enter someone else's story. So it's like they're, they're my audience. They're, you know, they're my people to entertain or my people to make happy, which in one sense is my gift, but also anything like, like any gift we have, we can always be poorly used. So I'm just going to finish up. First Corinthians has been showing us through these last weeks that our way of living is different. The resurrection of Jesus is a life-changing event, and it's the most single, the most significant historical occurrence in the history of mankind. Amazingly, Christ rising from the dead has become almost a cliche in the church. But, some spe but spend some time, I'm going to ask you, spend some time this week thinking about just how astounded the disciples were when Jesus appeared before them. The argument against the Bible in a lot of cases is, well, it was written by the people that believed it. Of course they're going to be pro-Christian. But the Bible wasn't written by believers. It was written by skeptics and doubters. But they wrote down, this is what I have seen. There's no way I can deny this anymore. Jesus is God, and he has risen from the dead. And you'll, then you'll begin to understand why they fearlessly spread the gospel everywhere they went. Kayla mentioned the cherubs, but chubby babies, and the illustration of heaven. That belittles the glorious future we have with God because our, we have no idea what it's going to be like when the Lord comes back. I mean, we, we may go to heaven. We may stay on earth onto a new heaven and a new earth. The Bible, in my view, isn't really clear on what it's going to actually be like. We're all going to be changed. That's all we know for sure. But one thing that's interesting, we have no We all think of heaven as what's good for me. You know, I'm going to have a, new, a nice car. You know, we think, what, what are the kind of things that would make us happy? We think that's what heaven's going to be like. But we just have no idea what just being in the presence of God is like for eternity with an infinite being that loves us infinitely. Time's up, sorry. Got to go, bye. Um, but, um, and just, we're going to spend an eternity with this person. And just imagine, spend some time today thinking about that. Some say God is self-centered. 
that he needs us to believe in him. He, you know, he needs us to have faith in him and that kind of stuff. I've actually had people tell me that. And then my response is, well, if he's the source of life, what would he say? You know, shucks, I'm the source of life. No, I am the source of life. So that's what he says. It's not necessarily arrogant. He doesn't need me. He's the source of life. And I think to tie it up, everything is uh, in Caleb's sermon last week, Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So my dear brothers and sisters, this is another version of the same verse from the living, New Living T- Translation. So my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord. For you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. Can we pray? Dear Lord, I thank you for this time together, and I thank you for the chance to share some of my thoughts. And I thank you, Lord, that um, in advance that people understood where I was coming from. And I thank you, Father, that um, everything that you give us is an opportunity to draw nearer to you and to draw others to you and to become more connected as a family of believers. And I just thank you, Lord, that you are here with us and that you draw us together. And I thank you for those that came today, that you give them special blessing, special insight, and, ex- and just special explanation of what I'm trying to communicate. Thank you so much, Lord, for all that you've done for us and all that you do, and help us to always remember that you are our king, you are our strength, you give us joy, you give us everything that we have in life, and you make the life we have worth living. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So what do I do? Oh, you're here. The Smith Family Sermon.